Welcome to the 149th episode of The Goods, a film podcast. How are you doing this late November afternoon? Doing okay. Yeah, almost December. Lots of folks got the Christmas lights up. I'll take care of that. Not not too far away now, but not quite yet. It got real cold. I'm going to I'm going to be chaperoning my daughter's field trip on Friday. And at one point it was projected to be like in the low thirties or upper twenties. And I was like, Hmm, do I actually want to do this? But now it's looking like it'll probably be the forties, which is still cold, but like, I don't know. It is December, I guess. Jeez. So. Well, it's all in the name of making memories. Yeah. 149 is getting up there in the number count. We're almost to 150. Yeah, that's right. We passed three years. We didn't really talk about that, but I guess we can at our spectacular after episode 150. So you'll be picking our episode for 150. We'll talk about that at the end. And this is the first episode that we are recording after our Thanksgiving. Oh, yeah. What'd you get up to? I have a little bit of a <laughs> Thanksgiving story. It was kind of a misadventure. So my brother, I'm the oldest of six. So number three got married. His name's Brad. And he lives in South Bend, Indiana, just outside of Notre Dame. And so we had this whole trip planned. He's going to leave Wednesday before Thanksgiving, drive halfway up one day, then drive the rest the next day, have Thanksgiving there with everyone who was going to the wedding, then drive back on Sunday because the wedding was on Saturday. So on Wednesday morning, we put everything in the car and then my wife got sick. She started feeling really sick pretty quickly. And so we were like, well, we shouldn't be driving. So we we called the drive off for, for Wednesday. We thought, you know what? Forget Wednesday. We'll just Thursday. We're going to drive all, all the way up on Thursday. So then Thursday comes around. This is Thanksgiving morning. We, we pile in the car again. When I say getting ready, I'm talking about we, we were trying to leave at the crack of dawn, like we're waking up at six and trying to be out the door before seven. And we do this again. We get in the car. We're, we're pulling out at like six forty five. We get just over an hour down the road and my four year old starts throwing up. Oh, man. Like, oh, gosh. Now. So then our choice is turn around and go back home or drive another nine hours with a stomach bug four-year-old. So we decided to turn around. So the wedding's on Saturday. And at this point, we've had two trips foiled and we're not sure if the bug's going to spread to anyone else. I'm pretty good with like most bodily function, grossness, dirty diapers, all that. I don't get squeamish about much, but vomit is the one thing that'll do it to me. 
And like that really kind of throws me off my game. So I was I was real nervous about doing this and not looking forward to it. But none of us showed any symptoms on throughout the day on Thursday. And so we decided to drive up on Friday all the way up. And luckily that trip went basically without a hitch. We got up there Friday just in time for the rehearsal, the rehearsal dinner. Nobody else got sick. Uh, my brother had like a mini bachelor party for the people who were in town on Friday night. And then the wedding was on Saturday. And then a Sunday we drove back and Sunday was actually the more brutal travel day than Friday ended up being just because there was worse traffic. It took us about 12 hours to drive all the way back. And that is a lot of driving in one day for a four-year-old and a six-year-old. But it was a really lovely wedding. I'm glad we went. My daughters were the flower girls and they were extremely cute in my totally unbiased opinion. But it was quite the Thanksgiving weekend for us. And it was such a relief to be back and have, have made it through it. Everybody's still well, not having ruined any weddings, all the driving behind us. So, yeah, geez, that's wild. I was going to say, I'm surprised you even went, but point one, he is your brother. Point two, I forgot that your daughters were the flower girls. So, I'm sure both of those things were major contributing factors. But also, why drive 10 hours? Why not fly? Well, there's a few reasons. The biggest is that it's expensive. And the second biggest is it ends up not really saving you all that much time or hassle because it's harder to find a flight straight into South Bend. So you have to kind of either fly to Chicago and then drive two hours there. But then you don't have your car and we had to drive around. So it made a little more sense when we planned it and we were going to split it up, you know, five hours one day, five hours the next day, stop somewhere nice the first day through, then just power through one awful return day back. We ended up obviously cramming it into uh, a drive, but yeah. And we've also never flown with them. I think they'd probably do fine with it, but we'll do it at some point. But flying is pretty expensive right now. So. Yeah. Anyways, what about you? Did you have a good Thanksgiving? Mine was much less of a story <laughs> to tell. I stuck around here. We had some turkey. My brother sent some pictures from what he was up to down in Florida. That was about it. Gotcha. No marathon driving sessions for me. <laughs> My last flight, I went to a wedding in Connecticut back at the start of the fall, and it was a breeze. I mean, it's like an hour flight. So Yeah. I mean, at that point, I'm almost like on the flip side of that. What do you even gain by flying at that point? Because isn't Connecticut like a six-hour drive or something? Oh, I but... think it would be more than that. I mean, really? it's, okay. New York City is like five hours. I would guess Connecticut was probably like seven. Okay. But anyways, today the movie I had us watch and discuss is the 1989 Ron Howard film called Parenthood. And I actually want to open this episode not talking about the movie, but talking about something big that happened to me this past year. And this is about my dad. So in July, I went on a family vacation. I've actually gone on a similar family vacation for the past three or four years, we decided a couple years ago that we wanted to start doing annual vacations with our family, our, you know, like my family and my wife's family. And we actually, they know each other pretty well because me and my wife have been dating since high school. They get along really well. And so we actually invite all of them together. And we went to the beach the past two years. And this year we decided we were going to do something different. So we 
rented a big like log cabin style resort house with like eight bedrooms and we invited everyone. So we invited my parents, we invited my wife's parents, we invited all of our siblings and the people who could make it were one of Katie's three brothers and then all of my siblings except Will, who was still in Japan at the time, and then a bunch of significant others and then obviously us and our kids. So we ended up with 15 people at this log cabin house in July. And we had a we had a really awesome time. So we we had a bunch of different activities. My wife, Katie, she organized this whole field day thing. It was really awesome. It was like 10 different activities and all of us participated. We broke into teams for some of them. We had stuff like pool noodle jousting and cup stacking races and different things like that. And then my mother-in-law organized like a murder mystery game. So I don't know if you've ever done like a murder mystery party, Brian. Have you ever done one of those? Oh, yeah, I've done a few. I for a few years, like 2015, right up until the pandemic, there was this guy who would throw like lavish birthday parties and they were always essentially a murder mystery, like a LARP type thing where everybody had a role to play and the story could branch and go and resolve different ways. Oh, interesting. You got like a packet with information about your characters and secrets and stuff. Exactly. And the first one that he did came from a kit in a box. But then like more people wanted to be involved than were written for in the boxes. And so then he started writing his own campaigns. Wow. Yeah, that would be a lot of writing, but that would be pretty cool. So I had never done one of these. It was pretty cool. It was like an Old West themed one. And I was a gambler who had some gambling debt to resolve. The day after we had that that murder mystery, a few people had gone home for work, but the rest of us decided we were going to all go on a hike together. So it was me, my wife, my kids, uh, my parents, my wife's parents, a couple of my siblings, and we went on this hike at a state park. So it was re- it was pretty hot, not too hot, and it was in the woods, so it was kind of shady and stuff. Some of it was kind of like up a hill and down a hill in the woods. And then there was a long stretch of it that was like a long flat path along like a, a reservoir type thing. So it was a nice walk. And as we were walking towards the end of it, my dad started to tell me that he was not feeling well. And we got back to the car. It's just a few minutes later. My dad sat in the in his car. They turned the AC on. He had some water. Um, the rest of us were still, we wanted to look around the park a little bit. We walked. There was like this covered bridge in the state park that we went and we looked at. It was really cool, like painted all red and like encased in a tunnel. And we probably spent another half hour there. I said hi to my dad as we were getting back in the cars to drive back to the, the vacation house. And he said he was starting to feel a little bit better. And uh, we drove back and when we were getting back, my brother texted me. He said, dad's still not feeling well. Some of the symptoms sound like heart attack symptoms. And then when we walked into the house, it was me and a couple of my brothers. I think people had just started to kind of make it back. And one of my brothers said, hey, I think we should call 911 because dad's still not feeling well. And so we we called 911 basically to to have someone, you know, come pick him up in an ambulance. And we were kind of in a rural area 
And so they said it would it would probably take like 15 minutes for someone to get out there because we're kind of like in sort of the outskirts of Pennsylvania. While we were on the phone, my dad had a full on heart attack and it was like he I don't quite know how to describe it, but like he kind of got non-responsive. He got really tense, like his his he was clenched and like his arm was kind of crooked and um, his jaw got really tight. And he he kind of stopped responding. He's like distant look in his uh, his eyes. And so me and my brother, like with the 911 on the line, started doing CPR on my dad, you know, and it's crazy because like one hour earlier, it was like a happy, normal family vacation. Like my dad was, you know, he's he was a little overweight. He always had high blood pressure, but he was very active. And he was 62 and he had just gone on a long hike in Europe the previous summer. Uh, one of the Caminos in Spain. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Caminos. It's like a, a like a big Catholic pilgrimage thing that you do. There's different versions of it, but like it's a, like a multi-day hike type thing. Right. So, yeah. So now it's like things come at you fast. One of my brothers, actually the one who just got married, was the one doing the compressions and I was holding my dad and then my another brother had the 911 on speaker. And this happened like a minute after we called or two minutes or something after we called 911. And, you know, we're, we're just sit. He had lined that lay down in his bed. We, we kind of like had to lift him off of the bed onto the ground before we started CPR. And so we had to wait like 10 minutes before an EMT would be there. So. I mean, one thing I kind of knew in the back of my head that I had heard before is that, like, if you have to do CPR on someone, the odds of their survival are, like, really low. And so, you know, this was like, I don't know. It's like a state of shock for me, too. And at first, he's still there, clearly. Like, I would be like, all right, Dad, you really need to try to take a breath now. And then he would take like a gasping, shuddering breath. And, you know, he could tell that like he was still kind of present, even if he wasn't like really there, like he wasn't looking at us or talking to us or anything like that. And, you know, for what feels like, I don't know, it's one of those like weird time bendy things. Like it felt like an instant, but also it felt like hours doing these CPR compressions on my dad, trying to keep him there. And over the last couple minutes, while we're waiting for the EMTs to get there, like it's starting to occur that like he's fading and he's not quite as there as he was. And so the EMTs finally get there and they have like a a machine that they can do the compressions. And then they also have the thing that does the shock, you know, I forget what that's called. The defibrillator. Exactly. So they take over from me and my brother. Um, And again, you know, shout out to my brother. He was the one who was actually doing the compressions this whole time. And I was kind of doing other stuff. And as was my my other brother there. And they kind of pull him out into a different room a little bit. Still lying down. They put on the machine. They give him the defibrillation shocks. We're kind of sitting in another room. Just like there's what do you do? You're just kind of waiting. We kind of call a couple people and like the people in our family, like two of my brothers and my sister weren't there anymore. 
we call them and tell them that like dad's had a heart attack and he's being treated by EMTs right now. And we, it doesn't look good, but we don't know what's going on and call a couple of my dad's siblings. And then maybe like 10 or 15 minutes later, they did, I think three defibrillator shocks. Um, they basically came out to us who were waiting in the other room and said, uh, we're not going to be able to revive him. And so my dad passed away, you know, while we were on family vacation together, like surrounded by us when he had just been in a normal hanging out with us, like barely an hour earlier at that point. And man, I don't know. I still, it's been now, uh, over four months and it's like a moment. I don't think I'll ever fully escape. It's something I keep coming back to. Like, I don't know, I'll just think about it. And my, my head will go to those few moments. And one part of it is that I, I sometimes wonder, like, what could we have done differently? What if we had done a different hike, a shorter hike? What if we had called 911 as soon as he started feeling bad? What if we had even gone to a vacation at a different house? Because we were looking at a couple of different houses where it wasn't quite so rural. And, you know, I don't think I'll ever fully escape the shadow of all that. I mean, on the other hand, I don't feel like we, we did everything we could, you know, it's like we were never negligent in what we did. And I at least take some some peace in that. And also, I mean, you know, I guess the thing that I'm kind of saddest about, about my, my dad passing is that, you know, my daughters and then any subsequent kids that my my siblings have, they won't get to know him very well or. You know, I, I suspect my now six-year-old will remember him, remember her time with him, because we spent a lot of time with with my parents. Um, they used to watch my daughters once every other week. Um, they would come over and they would watch the girls. And because they lived nearby to us, they lived about a 15, 20-minute drive from, from us. I would see them at least once or twice a month. So, you know, uh, really close to them. And... Uh, I think they'll remember him some, but I think my my four-year-old, she was three at the time, probably won't like distinctly have any memories of him, which is kind of sad and hard to think about because he's a, a terrific grandfather and um, that kind of hurts a lot. And then any subsequent kids that like my brothers or my sister have won't get to know him at all. And that's just really not fair. I mean, he was he was only 62 and he was in pretty good shape and it's... That's sad. And I guess one thing I also feel is that like I was I was pretty close with him. I was on good terms with him. You know, I, I was I've always been close to my dad. You know, in some ways, I feel like my personality has shifted a little bit more towards my mom's personality as I've gotten older. But in other ways, very much not so. And I've always kind of found myself really modeled after my dad. And, and I've just always, ever, you know, most people admire their dad, not everyone. A lot of people have messed up relationships with their parents in some ways, but I've been very blessed that I haven't. And he gave me a, a great model for, uh, how to be a dad, how to be a husband. He's, he is, was the most devoted and, and self-sacrificing husband. And is something of a model for me on that. And, it's, it's hard not having him around. And there are still times where I think of like, I don't know, for like a moment, I'll be like, I need to text my dad that, or I need to text my parents that, 
but like there's not parents anymore. There's just my mom now. And of course it's been hard on her. She's an extremely resilient person. I think a lesser person would have like just crumbled under like unexpectedly losing your husband in the blink of an eye. You know, I, I do find some peace in that, you know, a lot of people when they get older, they have like really long debilitating descents before they, they pass away. And for him, at least he passed as you might want to pass. You know, he was surrounded by family. He was in a beautiful place. He didn't suffer. He lived a good life, an active life and a healthy life up until the day he died. And he, he was always spending time with family. And one moment I kind of think about when I think back on my dad is it's, it's hard to describe someone's personality. Um, and I think everybody tends to like maybe over praise or, or what's the right word tend, tend to put the people who help form them, especially parents, like up on a pedestal and, or, you know, and blame them for everything. If, if you don't have a good relationship with your parents or, or who knows, but, you know, I think of my dad as like an uncommonly kind and outgoing person who really brought people in to whatever he was doing, just a, a terrific community member. Uh, when I was a boy scout, this is a moment I think about a lot. When I was a boy scout, my dad was a volunteer and uh, so were obviously some of my friends' parents. And one time I heard two of my friends' dads talking and they, they were talking about, they were just kind of like ranting and bantering about how the more kids you have, the more cynical and mean a person you become because the kids just wear you down more and more and more. And then I said, well, what about my dad? He has the most kids. Does that make him the meanest of all? And they said, oh, you mean St. Dana? No, he's the nicest. And it was like thinking of him as St. Dana that I don't know, just the that phrase kind of sticks with me because I, I think he was like a, a very kind person and uh, he brought a lot of warmth and positivity to this world. And obviously so much to me. And, you know, I'm, I'm at peace with having lost him. It hurts. And like I said, what hurts more is not my relationship with him, but the next generation's relationship with him. We, my kids called him Pops and he, and he was great Pops, you know, and after that, that day, it was just kind of like a state of shock for, for a few days. You know, we, you, there's one thing that you don't necessarily know until you've been through it is that there's just so much logistics and things to do when someone dies, there's paperwork to fill out and things to plan and decisions to make. And this is all when you're like right on the tail of like the biggest shock of your life. And so it's that whole few days is kind of a blur of just stuff going on nonstop and um, I don't know, it's like kind of starting to be in that phase where it's like just the reality now, like it is what it is. It's not like this is life now. You know, I've moved on past the the transition and the, the short term grief. And now I'm trying to adjust to what it is. And when I look back on 2023, there's been so many great things that have happened to me this year. And we'll probably talk about some of them when we do our spectacular in a couple episodes, but this is like the shadow that hangs over it all because, you know, you only ever have one dad and, um, losing him in such a way where not only was it abrupt, but it was right there. You know, I was there in the, it was, he was, I was literally holding him as I could tell he was, he was leaving, you know, and it's, um, it's going to leave a mark on me forever. So, I mean, I guess I just kind of wanted to talk about the experience of kind of going through that and like how that's kind of left an impact on me because 
I haven't really talked too much about it on the pod and it's something that kind of colors everything I've done since and has, has been the big part of my life since. So I just wanted to share it with you and I want to share it with listeners and I'll post in the discord, I'll post my dad's obituary. I know it's been a few months now, but I'll post it there. And I mean, even the obituary, it's run by like the funeral parlor and they have like a feature where you can write comments. And so many people wrote comments about like, you know, their memories of him and the, the fact that he was a positive influence in their life in some way. And like he worked for the EPA for over 30 years. That's the Environmental Protection Agency. And like some of the people who replied were like Indian tribes that like, hey, he like helped protect our territory with his environmental protection and just lots of like people he worked with because he hadn't yet retired. He was still working, which added a whole new logistical wrinkle to it. Uh, figuring out finances and all that. And then, you know, friends he grew up with. And, um, you know, he just, he he kind of opened his arms and he he had a big network of people in his life. And I guess the number one thing that I kind of want to take away from him that really this is kind of, that this experience has encouraged me to do is to try to build that network more intentionally. I'll never be as outgoing or gregarious as my dad was. I don't quite have that gene the way that he does, but I think it's one way he's an inspiration for me is that you can, just by being a kind person, an outgoing person and bringing people in, you can have that impact, even if it feels small to you, even if it feels like, I don't know, something like what's the purpose of it, of going out of your way to connect with people, reach, you know, organize get-togethers, call them just to say hi. Like what, what, what's the purpose of those things? Well, it does leave a big impact on people and it's worth it to do those things to, to try and connect with the people around you. And so that's what I'm hoping to take away from him. And just to try to be the parent that he was to try to be the leader and the role model and someone that my kids can say X years from now, he gave me a model for how to be a dad, how to be a spouse how to connect with people around him. So I know I'm kind of rambling here, but it's it's been a lot to process. And I, I just want to share it with you, Brian, and I want to share it with the listeners too. And obviously the movie Parenthood 1989 has some connective tissue to it. And I'll probably bring up a couple of things that made me think of my dad as we kind of talk through it. But I just wanted a movie that gave me kind of a, a chance to like think a little bit more about my relationship with my dad. But Thank you for, for giving me a moment to share all of that, Brian. Yeah, sure. Wow, I'm sorry I had to go through that. I can hardly even imagine an experience like that. But I know that your dad obviously left behind a big family, and even beyond that, he gave a lot to the world. One of my biggest memories, I mean, of these last few months, is that at the funeral home, there was a huge line of people there to see him. And, and pay their respects and share their memories. So he did touch a lot of lives. And what I remember was that he was always really nice. And he watched Gauntly. So <laughs> how could anybody be bad who watched Gauntly and, and not only watched it, but like paid attention to it and could tell you specific things about it? Yeah, he loved flip, flipping through the channels. There's a handful of movies that I always think of him just like turning on cable TV and watching 
but it wasn't just movies. It was obviously shows. And he, he loved loved it when he flipped through Fairfax County Public Access to find Brian and his buddies, occasionally me on TV. Yeah. But I think that was obviously a, a more serious and reflective uh, uh, segment to our show here. But for now, talking kind of about Parenthood, um, the, the 1989 Ron Howard movie, um, I think I'm just going to kind of pivot here to talking about the movie and just take a sip of coffee and we can kind of move on from that. That, that was just kind of like a prelude and context setting for how I feel about relationships with parents right now, you know, but we can go back to our usual the goods banter. Sure. I know that's been cooking, burgeoning for a while. So I'm glad you had the opportunity to share that. I was wondering what went into the decision process to pick this specific movie? Did you just Google parent movies? Because you haven't seen this one before, right? Right. I hadn't seen it before. I was familiar with its reputation as kind of a slice of life dramedy about different types of parenting styles. And that is kind of what drew me to it. And I thought it would be, I thought it would give something good for me to think about, especially if it had like multiple parent relationships. It wouldn't necessarily be like, projecting either my dad's relationship with me or my relationship with my kids onto like a single child dad relationship. Cause at first I was thinking like, what's a good movie about a dad. And then I thought of parenthood. I was like, okay, that's like, there it is in a nutshell. It's like parenthood, the movie that's gotta be what it is. And that'll have probably different things to slice and dice to think about parenthood. And I think that ended up being correct as we'll, we'll talk about here. Oh yeah. I mean, that's such a broad concept. I went in thinking, well, how could, that whole idea be a film and it nails it pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. So parenthood came out in 1989, as I've already mentioned, directed by Ron Howard, also written by Ron Howard, um, actually co-written by Ron Howard, uh, which he did not often do. The names of the other writers are Lowell Gans and Babalu Mandel, which is a heck of a name, uh, B-A-B-A-L-O-O Mandel. And they are a screenwriting team who looks like they always work together. But kind of interesting that uh, Ron Howard co-wrote it. So apparently the way that this was kind of conceived is like Ron Howard wanted to do a sort of slice of life story with like different mixed families types. And so he and his producer, Brian Grazer, and uh, these two screenwriters kind of all came together and brainstormed like ideas for for types of parent kid relationships they could have in the story and kind of piece that together. And I think it's apt that this movie has twice been turned into a TV series because it almost feels like a pilot to a TV show or something like that. Did you get any of those vibes, Brian? I agree because it's dense. There's so many things happening all at the same time. And yet it doesn't feel like stuff gets short shrift. We right. keep, we're like routinely checking in with each element of the story and they kind of grow and develop organically. But yes, when you Google this story, parenthood, that title TV shows come up first before the film. And I didn't realize they were tied together, that they were the same seed led to all of them but they did those tv shows were developed by imagine entertainment ron howard's company 
they of Arrested Development and other things? I watched the first season of the 2010 TV series Parenthood, which I think had like five or six seasons. And that's actually how I learned about this movie. They said it was based off of a 1989 movie. And I kind of put that as one that I wanted to catch up with someday. So what what's your experience with Ron Howard as a director, Brian? So let's see. I've seen Apollo 13, which is pretty good. And he did the Da Vinci Code movies also, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I saw the first movie, which was based on the second book. And then when that was a big hit, he went and did the others. I haven't seen those. I'm not sure if I've seen Howard directed films beyond that. Gotcha. A couple that you might be familiar with. One of them I'm pretty sure you have seen, and that is the 2000 adaptation of How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Did you know that was a Ron Howard movie? Oh, I didn't. I've not seen that. Oh, you haven't? I'm a purist, a Chuck Jones purist. I haven't watched the Benedict Cumberbatch, haven't watched anything beyond the 1960s TV special. I'm surprised that you, you somehow avoided that one. It was like a family movie staple. I've heard the song for sure. Where are you, Christmas? I tend to think of Ron Howard as a craftsman director with a void of authorial voice in his directing work. Like... I never walk away from a movie that Ron Howard made and said, man, that was obviously a Ron Howard movie because I don't know what that is. There's not a thing that's a Ron Howard movie. It's like he he injects so little voice and distinct flavor into his films that it actually kind of bothers me when I watch his movies. He He's a pretty good craftsman overall, I would say. I kind of enjoyed the Da Vinci Code movies. There were three of them. The third one was pretty bad, but... Uh, That one's called Inferno, the third one. But the first two, Da Vinci Code and Angels and Demons, they're kind of their own kooky thing, like the religious conspiracy where like every scene is Tom Hanks going in and Sherlock Holmesing. But instead of like obscure details like, oh, the fingerprint is here. It's like he brings in some historical fact and they're kind of satisfying. It's like a junk food almost because you're like, oh, wait, he's figured out this riddle. Oh, wait, he figured out this riddle just over and over again. And of course, it's they're like set in beautiful European cities. So like you get that sort of travelogue feel to it. And it's cool to see like, I don't know, like St. Peter's Cathedral with no tourists in it. Like that's just not a thing that you can see in real life. But it's kind of cool that you get to see it in this movie, you know, so I kind of appreciate that. Yeah, I would. I enjoyed reading the first Da Vinci Code book when that was all the rage. And it's kind of you know, Indiana Jonesy, but with a niche flavor where it specializes in the religious history and the art history. Mm-hmm. And of course, those ones starred Tom Hanks, which, you know, is a plus for me. I think so. Another big one that he directed recently is he directed the Solo, a Star Wars movie. So the funny thing about that to me is that he took over from Lord and Miller, who the directing pair who are known for like their exuberant, postmodern, quippy style. And it's just such a funny distinction. Like a Lord and Miller movie, to me, that is like, you know exactly the flavor you're getting with a Lord and Miller movie. But like to go from that to Ron Howard is like the biggest possible juxtaposition. So I thought it was kind of funny that after they got fired or they left or whatever the drama was, the creative disagreement on making the Han Solo movie, that they brought in Ron Howard the person who had like 
the least authorial voice of, of our major directors. It bugs me whenever that happens that inevitably it's Disney hires some like big name up and coming director to helm a film in one of their monolithic shared universes. And then the next thing you hear is actually they're out the door because of creative differences. <laughs> and now somebody else that is not as interesting is in. It's like, well, why'd you bring that first person in the door in the first place? Where's Edgar Wright's Ant-Man? Oh, it never works, but it might work for us. He also directed A Beautiful Mind, which might have been a Best Picture winner. Oh, yeah, that did get Best Picture. I've seen that. It was strange. Have you watched that? No, I've never seen it. So that's got, is it Russell Crowe as the main guy? Yes. I think so. So he plays a mathematician who like develops schizophrenia. So he just goes insane and his world, because you see the story from his perspective. So like weird things that don't make any sense start happening. And I guess it's based on a true story. Oh, interesting. But yeah, I think Howard has had a successful career. You know, I don't think that's a controversial thing to say. No, I mean, it's quite a career. Is He's been in it ever since he was a kid. I mean, his father, Rance Howard, was involved with filmmaking. He was Opie, obviously, for quite a while. And then he went straight from that to Richie Cunningham in Happy Days, which was right around the same time as American Graffiti, almost like two sides of the same coin. And I looked at his filmography. He actually directed his first film in like 1977, so right around the American graffiti times, he was already starting off as a director. So we're, we're looking at like 45 years, more than 45 years in the future. His, his first theatrical release wasn't until 1984. That was the Tom Hanks movie Splash, where uh, Tom Hanks dates a mermaid. But even if you just look at Splash, we're coming up on 40 years of a career. And he's had a pretty steady output. He also produces a lot and stuff. Right, he's the narrator in Arrested Development. Exactly. Um, he got some Oscar buzz back in 2020 with the Hillbilly Elegy movie, which most of the people I know thought that that was like a real trashy movie, poor taste movie, but I haven't seen it. I mean, just looking at Parenthood, it's on Letterboxd his 16th most popular movie, and it made over $100 million. How many directors do you think have movies that have made $100 million and have Oscar nominations that aren't in their top 15 most popular on Letterboxd. There, there can't be all that many out there. Like Steven Spielberg is probably one, for example. But like, how many are there, you know? Yeah, that's wild. I will say I hadn't heard of this before you brought it to the discussion. Gotcha. And I might not have if I hadn't known it from the TV show. But yeah. So the structure of this, it's... A lot of times when I'm like writing reviews or talking about a movie, I'll say it's like it's like a hangout comedy, but in the drama genre or the dramedy or some other genre, you know, and what that really means is like I think of it in terms of like Dazed and Confused, but like I think you just call that a slice of life movie like that's what that is. And so this is a slice of life movie where you just kind of follow this extended family, which we'll see is like mainly kind of four siblings adult siblings that each have their own families that are each parents in different ways across a few months with then an epilogue that kind of jumps about a year in the future after that. Right. I would say that a lot more happens in this movie than Dazed and Confused. 
Yeah, but I agree. But there's not really like a distinct inciting incident and arc. It's just like you're following four families over a course of a few months and they each kind of have some development. over. Sure. And I guess I would say it's realistic. There's not a lot of genre elements happening. Yeah, exactly. There's, it's not really heightened at all. There's, although there's like a few dramatic turns, I would say. It's not like somebody's battling cancer or like they're going to do a heist to rob a bank or something like that. It's just following their lives, you know, relatively normal lives, which I think is part of the point for sure. No time traveling French aristocrats. Time traveling French aristocrats. What's that? Well, I was thinking Kate and Leopold, but I guess he wasn't actually French, oh, but yeah. he, he wore that style of dress. <laughs> so this movie's got a pretty baller cast, Brian. Pretty out of control. It's amazing. There's so many people in this film. So Steve Martin is the lead. He plays one of the parents, one of the four adult siblings. He's supposed to be 35 years old, Brian. Did you hear him say that? I was like, you gotta be kidding me. Yeah, a couple things about that. One, no way is Steve Martin 35 in this movie. But also, I mean, you're 35, Dan. At the same time, though, it's kind of a meme these days that people used to look a lot older at a certain age than they do now. Like, the one that I've seen just all over the place this year is that Paul Rudd is older than Wilford Brimley was when he played an old man in Cocoon. A Ron Howard film, by the way. But yeah. Or like, if you look at the cast of Cheers when they were on Cheers, like they were not that old and some of them look rough. Yeah. Ages of sitcom characters always throws me off. Like, even if you were to say, how old is blank? It's like, I don't know. Like, they're just kind of like an immortal being. Like, I don't think of them as a specific age. Like Ted from How I Met Your Mother. How old is Ted at the start of How I Met Your Mother? I don't know, like maybe what, like 26 or something, but he doesn't really have an age. He's just generic 20 something. That's what he is. You know, I don't know. But having them be youngish allows multiple generations of the family to be around. Exactly. So when you're 35, you can have your kids. And then, you know, if you had kids young, so I guess the older sister played by Diane Wiest. Some people say they're bothered by the word moist. I'm bothered by the word Wiest. It <laughs> sounds like moist wheat or wet yeast. Wheat. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. It, I think it's Wiest and not Weist. I Googled it and Google said Diane Wiest. I was like, it's not Wiest. That one I'm pretty sure of. Oh my gosh. I've got a teacher who says Liet motif. Oh, no. And I say, no, that's that's not it. You may be the director of the program, but that's not how you pronounce leitmotif. <laughs> but she has older teenage kids, which, of course, like that's the age, as we'll see, where you can start to be worried about teen parenthood and becoming a grandmother. And then their their father. So the, the grandfather is still around, too. Um, his name's Frank. And he's played by Jason Robards. So let's just go through the cast real quick. So the first couple is Steve Martin and Mary Steenburgen. She's back, Brian. What was the last time we saw her? I know we saw her in Turkey Hollow. A classic. A true classic. (laughs) 
There was some. Oh, Step Brothers. We saw her in too. Oh right. Some of my favorite Mary Steenburgen roles are Elf. Mm-hmm. And also, there's one where she's a time traveler's girlfriend in one called Time After Time, mm. where I think it's Roddy McDowell. I get the McDowells mixed up. But anyway, the guy is battling Jack the Ripper. And actually, Jack the Ripper is played by the guy who plays the manservant in Titanic, uh, David Warner. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. He plays the antagonist. The guy who runs around chasing after Leo. So one that's one couple and they have three kids. The next couple, or I guess it's not a couple because Diane Weist plays Helen and her husband is a good for nothing dentist who ran out. I kind of like that as a twist on like the absent parent. It's like the like the wealthy upper middle class, you know, respectable member of the community who's the one who ran out, not like a low life. You don't see a lot of deadbeat dentists. <laughs> and then the third one is we got Rick Moranis in here. Same year as Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And he's married and has one kid. I, I did not recognize his wife. Did you know his wife? I recognized her, but I couldn't place her. And I haven't looked her up yet. Gotcha. I'm sure I've seen her in something. So her name is Harley Jane Kozak, but I I didn't look her up to see if I knew her from anything either. Then the last one is we have Tom Hulsey. Is that how you say it? I'm not sure. H-U-L-C-E. I've said Hulse in my head, but I have no context. Could be Hulse. Yeah. Tom Hulse. We'll go with that. And if it's wrong, we'll just look like a fool for posterity. It's all right. Tom, join our Discord and you can correct us. Of course, best known as Mozart from the movie Amadeus with the ridiculous laugh. And he was also Quasimodo in the Disney Hunchback. He plays the the black sheep of the family. I use that phrase in my notes and then it's apparently what Wikipedia uses too. And he lives in Vegas and is a relentless gambler and also someone always on a get-rich-quick scheme. So that's kind of the recurring thing. So those are the four siblings that we follow. And I think we'll just go through like each of them because they each kind of operate independently. Those are like kind of the four slices of the story that we kind of bounce between where each parent, each one of the siblings is having their own family drama. And we like you and they're constantly seeing each other and meeting up, which is kind of nice. Like that's one thing for me, too, is like I'm close to my siblings Almost all my siblings live near me. So like if, if you were to make a story of our own lives, there would be intercut with siblings as, as hopping in and out as well, which is which is something nice. But the first of these and at the meatiest one is this the one on about Gil. So that's Steve Martin. And they have three kids. And the opening scene of the movie is actually a fantasy sequence. So there were like a few kind of fantasy sequences or dream sequences in here, Brian. What did you think of these? They grew on me as it went along. But yeah, our protagonist kind of has these Walter Mitty-esque lapses into fantasy that are triggered by developments in the story. And the first one is we see a kid actor who is Gil at a baseball game. And 
at first it seems like it's a genuine flashback, but then it gradually comes out that this is like happening inside his head. And he's kind of like remembering what would happen on his birthday repeatedly when he was a kid, which is that his dad would take him to a baseball game and then leave him to go get up to trouble somewhere. It's not like make a business deal, cavort, probably smoke a cigar somewhere while his son sits there and watches the game by himself. So that's kind of like an undercurrent of this is that they didn't have the greatest dad, but the dad is still around. So like he's kind of gotten better with age. But on the other hand, he's still like a model of what not to do. You know, it's like Gil is constantly trying to be a better dad than his dad was. And I actually found that kind of touching without being too heavily cloyed, I guess, or like heavily pushed is that just by being present and like always trying to do right by his kids, even when he screws it up and even when things go wrong, like we're seeing that being present is like an important part of being uh, a great dad. And the oldest of his kids is a boy named Kevin. I don't know if we know his age is something like eight years old or something like that. And he's starting to show problems in school, mainly like emotional problems and coping problems. And the principal says that he needs to transfer to a school for kids with special needs, a special education school, which like Gil and Karen's eyes, Mary Steenburgen, like get really big, like, oh, God, we don't want our kid to have to be stuck going to a special needs school. And I thought uh, this plot line was tread pretty well in like the parents trying to like have their kids be like normal, but also trying to help them. And it's like the fine line between I'm going to make sure that he's normal, but also like we need to do whatever we can to help him, even if it's difficult, etc. And I thought it was I thought it was actually pretty nuanced and, and pretty well drawn. I agree. I felt a connection with this. I actually had some similar issues growing up, uh, emotional difficulties and around probably that same time, like second, third grade and kind of course corrected gradually. So, yeah, it it read to me as fairly real and grounded. Mm -hmm. And Gil, who is working, his wife is not working, but he's working. But he's also like trying to put on his shoulders the responsibility of like getting his son, quote unquote, back on track. Although even the notion, does he need to be, quote unquote, back on track? Like, how much is that even relevant? It's a topic as well. Um, but he does, he does stuff like he he in Little League games, he puts him in the infield so that he has a chance to be the star of the game. Or like he tries to organize a party, a big birthday party with a lot of his friends there to like try and pump him up. And sometimes it backfires and sometimes it like sort of backfires and sometimes it kind of works. I thought that was a pretty good blend of like not making it to feel good all the time, but also like not making it always blow up in his face, you know, kind of had a blend of that there. Right. It made me really tense just how much is riding on these things that Steve Martin is trying to do. Right. And when it hinges kind of on what is the kid going to do? And yet you really feel for Steve Martin, at least I did. And these interactions, when he's like trying to push the kid in the baseball game, it triggered my favorite of the fantasy sequences, which is first 
Steve Martin thinks this is a great idea. Oh, he'll play baseball. He'll be the baseball star. And then we jump into a fantasy scene where it's 12 years later and the kid is making the valedictorian speech at like his college graduation or his high school graduation. And he's all decorated and he's like six and a half feet tall and has done all these great things. But then it cuts back and like the kid is messing up in the baseball game and starts crying. And then the next thing is we jump into an alternate future where the kid is committing the Texas University clock tower shooting, (laughs) which, of course, was the big hallmark one at the time. You know, it's nothing compared to these days. No, no kind of of numbers racked up in that one. But yeah, and both in both fantasy sequences. This is because my dad forced me in Little League. (laughs) I know. know, He was thanking him in the first one, and then in the second one, he's screaming from the clock tower, it's all because of Little League. (laughs) My dad made me do it. It's like it it plays totally different, but with the same content. And I was very much relating to, like, the huge swings you have and the vision of your kid. It's like when something goes a little bit wrong, you're like, oh, my God. I've ruined their life. They're going to have a horrible future because of what I've done. And then when you do something that boosts them up, you're like, yeah, they're going to be all, they're going to live the best life. They're going to be superstars. Like I try not to be that kind of parent and like focus on those things. But inevitably, like when something goes right or something goes wrong for your kid, it you go into those mental places. It's just something that happens. That's something the Simpsons always does well, that, there's so many like visions of dark futures for Bart, and he's usually enthusiastic about him. <laughs> Meanwhile, at work, Gil is gunning hard for this promotion, but he gets passed over for some like hardcore yuppie who's like whining and dining the clients and spending all of his time at the office. And I thought this did a pretty good job of um, like showing the work life balance, particularly. I feel like I could be wrong because I'm kind of privileged and I live, I work for like a company that's really generous and I've always worked for companies that are like very generous and understanding. Like, I feel like in general companies have gotten a little bit better about like not pushing too hard on work-life balance, particularly white collar companies. But again, I'm sure there are still places that are kind of like this where like, if you're not grinding, you're not advancing. And I, but it did read as kind of eighties to me where it was like, the hardcore yuppie revolution, American psycho, all that. And of course, Gil is like stuck at home trying to help with his kid. And like, there's two other kids and they're also trying to like do family outings and stuff. That part I related to so much where he's like, everything in his life is moving at once. And like, he's just trying to keep up with it all. But when he gets passed over for this promotion, he abruptly quits and he goes home and he tells his wife, Karen, that he quit. And she's like, Oh, I'm actually pregnant. We're going to have a fourth kid. And they discuss getting an abortion. I feel like this might have been kind of progressive at the time. And even still, it read as more direct and honest than I expect these kinds of movies that are like family oriented to be about the topic of abortion, because it's very direct about it. Did you feel that as well? Yeah, I mean, I, for one, have never been in an experience like this. So I don't know what would be said, but I imagine it would come up. Yeah. So they talk about it, but Karen says she wants to keep the kid. And 
one of the few moments that felt like it was indulging and feel goodery, but Gil very rapidly gets a, co- a call back from his company. They're like, oh, we can't have you leave. You need to come back. We'll give you a raise. So it ends up working out well for him. And I feel like there's not too many times in real life where someone quits and the job comes back begging for them to come back. Maybe it happens sometimes. I don't know. Oh, I've had that happen before is I go and do something else and I end up not liking what I'm doing in the new place. And I go back to the old place. Hey, um, could you maybe use me again? And they gave me a $6 an hour raise. So, wow. yeah, it's like, okay, screw this other thing that I was doing. So I guess it does happen. Yeah. Sometimes if you're if you're a key wheel in the organization. That is true. Yeah. Sometimes you just got to be valuable. Right. And what do they say? The squeaky wheel gets the grease. You could go along to get along and just tow the company line for years and years and stay in the same position and never advance. And that does nothing for you. But if you like act, at least that you are in demand somewhere else, they may accommodate you. So that's kind of the first thread. And I'll come back to the epilogue for like when they kind of all tie together at the end here after we've gone through the other ones. The second one is... Diane Wiest, so she's the older sister and she's the single mom. And her, again, deadbeat dentist. That's a pretty, I like that turn of phrase, deadbeat dentist. And he's kind of like run off and started his own family, but they had two kids together before he ran off. So one is an older high schooler named Julie. So I did not recognize this, this actress who played Julie. Oh, well, she's from the Goonies. Oh, it was Martha Plimpton. I know who Martha Plimpton is. I didn't recognize her. Yeah, she was also in a show more recently called Raising Hope that my parents were watching in like reruns on Netflix. She's in Frozen 2, I think. Man, I didn't recognize her. I don't know why I didn't recognize her, but yeah. And then her her boyfriend is a baby-faced Keanu Reeves. And the other kid, the so he someone who's probably like an eighth grade or something, even more of a what the hell face. This is Joaquin Phoenix as like a 12-year-old playing the son of Diane Weist. Back when his name was Leaf. Leaf Phoenix, the brother of the more famous at the time, River Phoenix. Pretty crazy. I think right career choice to go from Leaf to Joaquin. I I don't know. But he still has some of that same like kind of creepy intensity about him, even as a kid. Right, these dark, sunken eyes that you can tell, oh, that's him. He's going to have a breakout role as like a murderous Roman emperor. So Todd, who's the boyfriend of the older daughter, probably the funniest performance. I wouldn't say like the best in terms of actual acting, but I laughed like five times at stuff that Keanu Reeves was doing. Well, he's basically still being Ted from Bill and Ted. Right. So this story, this thread kind of follows Julie and Todd going back and forth. So uh, it's kind of like a a secret relationship from the mom because the mom is, of course, like protective of the daughter. And there's this whole uh, farcical sort of mix up with photographs. So Keanu Reeves makes his he has like a, a camera. Like, what do you call those kinds of old school film cameras and takes pictures of him and Martha Plimpton having sex together. And then the mom ends up getting those photos by accident. And so it basically results in this big fight between Julie and Helen, 
where Julie storms out of the house, but then like a scene later, she's moving back in because she and Todd just keep breaking up and getting back together in a way that was funny, but not too outrageous. I would say like it happened at a cadence that I would believe it for 18 year olds or something. I don't know. Right. It seemed realistic. Like I was always triggered by something that kind of made sense because Keanu Reeves doesn't quite have his life together and doesn't seem like he would have his life together. But, like, his heart's in the right place. He's, like, a charming young guy. And, of course, the there's always, when you have these multi-generation things, there, there's always a lot of layers because you're seeing, the parents are seeing themselves in the kids, too. As well as the parents are seeing their parents in them. And so, of course, Helen is seeing, well, she's making a mistake, getting jumping into this relationship with this loser Keanu Reeves who can't decide if he's going to be a house painter or a dragster racer he goes back and forth like three times in the movie have you seen uh say anything that's the boombox movie right yeah no I haven't just the poster the scene with the boombox is like 20 seconds it's like such a small part of the movie and it's not even the climax it's just like a scene that happens but anyways there's a quote from that that I thought of, like I could imagine Keanu Reeves giving. So in Say Anything, it's uh, John Cusack. The character's name is Lloyd Dobler. But he says in Say Anything, he says, I don't want to sell anything, buy anything, or process anything as a career. I don't want to sell anything bought or processed, or buy anything sold or processed, or process anything sold, bought, or processed, or repair anything sold, bought, or processed. You know, as a career, I don't want to do that. And that's the same energy that Keanu Reeves has throughout this film. (laughs) I'm going to have to unpack that line. (laughs) It's a good one. And Gary, by the way, just very funny that Joaquin Phoenix's character is named Gary. I don't know why, but him being called Gary, he just doesn't seem like a Gary, man. I don't know. (laughs) But he's constantly going out of the house with this very suspicious brown paper bag. And like, what's in it? And of course, you're wondering, oh, is it drugs? Oh, is it alcohol? Oh, is it a gun? And he's going in fights. What is it? And then finally, Helen just gets her hands on the bag and it spills out and it's movies. Like, oh, God, thank goodness it's just movies. And then she opens one of them and it's porno movies that have been hidden in regular VHS tapes. So I guess he's been wandering around with this bag of porno movies like all the time, probably showing them to his friend or something like that. Why does she put it in the VCR? So she (laughs) finds the tape, which is hidden in like a Back to the Future case, but she slides it out and it says like wet and wild on the cassette. And then she proceeds to play it. Why? It's just human compulsion. It's it's human compulsion, Brian. Does she she not know what that is? If you see a link on the internet that says, here's a, a link to this gross thing that happens, like maybe you'll have the restraint to not click it, but most people are going to click it and go see the gross thing. Oh, yeah, let's go watch 67 pimples pop in one minute. Yeah, I, I, I'll click that. No, like for me, I'm just going to skip pass on whatever gross thing they're, they're linking to. But I, I understand that most people would. I think it's the same thing, but like in the pre-internet days, it's like you want to click the blue link, you know? Sure. The way that these two bits converge is, 
of course, Gary is very resistant to having like the sex talk with his mom, but she ropes in Keanu Reeves to do the the sex talk with the son, which I thought was pretty funny. And and it works out very well. Gary is like, oh, okay, And he starts opening up after the sex talk with Keanu Reeves. And uh, another thing that happens here is Gary decides he wants to go spend time with his dad. So he calls his dad, but his dad says no. And so he goes to the dentist office and starts smashing the dentist equipment. And I actually thought that scene was a fantasy sequence at first because we had seen some of them and it's kind of shot in a more heightened way when he's going around smashing dentist equipment. But apparently this this is something that actually happened in universe. Uh, Gary snuck into the dentist office. Yeah, well, it only shows the hands smashing everything. So it never shows the face so it's almost for a moment it's like oh well who's who is it right yeah but you know who it is so the last thing that happens here is they all go to one of todd's dragster races and he has an accident in a dragster race which is of course another american graffiti connection because what doesn't one of the characters have a drag race and then it announces he dies in a car crash in the title card at the end of the movie or something Right. Yeah, you get the big dramatic race and a crash like right at this same point in the runtime, pretty much, which is another also in that movie, you have many threads going on and you're always intercutting, you know, structurally, I think that's a very good comparison. That one's one night. But if American Graffiti were like a few months instead of one night, I feel like that actually matches the structure of this one pretty well. And they're about to break up again. But Helen, who's trying to be this this comforting force, like encourages them to get back together in part because it turns out Julie has gotten pregnant with Keanu Reeves's baby. So like she doesn't want another absent dad. So like stay together, try to stick through it for the baby and for each other. And then Helen, who has been single for years, decides to start dating Gary's unexciting but very kind biology teacher, who is one character who I felt got the short shrift. I felt like we needed... A little more context. Is he like a funny guy? Is he nice but dorky? Uh, I wanted to know more about the bio teacher. Right. We don't see too much of him. He kind of looked like one of my uncles. Like a, a, just a doughy guy with a big mustache. The third thread is Rick Moranis' family. And uh, remember Susan, Mick, Rick Moranis's wife, is the sister of Gil and Helen from the, the other threads. She's a teacher. And uh, Rick Moranis is named Nathan. He's a scientist. So they have one kid who's like four ish, I would say. And they are obsessed, particularly Nathan, with like raising this kid scientifically perfectly. And um, this is one way the movie felt really dated, sort of, actually. It was kind of interesting because like the stuff that they push against is like, oh, they shouldn't be doing baby talk and playing with other kids. They should be looking at flashcards. Well, now the brain science of childhood development says like exactly what you want to do. If you want to have a smart kid is like, let them play a lot. Let them socialize a lot. Let them build what's called executive function. Basically your ability to control your emotions and shift focus between things and focus on something for a long time. Whereas like all that flashcard stuff, isn't building skills that they're going to use. Like, even if it's like, Oh, they saw six times two and did knew that was 12. 
they're not actually learning math. They're just memorizing facts that isn't actually useful. So like in some ways, this movie is totally wrong on the science. But I do like that, like the supposedly smart parents are going about parenting in the wrong way. You know, like there's a lot of smart people who overthink parenting and like try to find the hacks and stuff. But there's not really hacks to parenting. You just need to like, I don't know, I should probably like come up with a concrete philosophy of parenting that I can articulate but like you need to give them lots of free time support them encourage them help them do the things they're trying to do and read to them a lot and play with them a lot and that's like what builds their mind it's none not like any of this you need science toys and you need flashcards and all that so right well it was representing all the constantly developing like parenting ideology fads exactly and all the books that come out that you got to read and it felt like the parents in rugrats talk about this kind of stuff as and it's always like a joke you know what does dr lipschitz say that's i actually now you say that i remember dr lipschitz and also it plays to rick moranis's strengths because he's always the mad scientist always the dorky scientist guy the one thing, though, is that this character is supposed to be really overbearing and like controlling. And that's not what I think of Rick Moranis being. I mean, he pulled it off OK, but at a little times so I was like, man, going hard there, Rick Moranis, like telling your wife what she can and can't do, you know? Well, it kind of emerges because I feel like you take him one way at face value and it's like, oh, this stuff that he's doing is quirky. But then as it like grows and grows, you realize the gravity of it. And it's like, oh, right. That's true, because Susan is like grown weary of Nathan's over planning and need to control everything and like have everything down to a T scheduled perfectly. And so towards the end of the movie, she decides she's going to leave him, which I thought came up kind of abruptly. But I guess it had been brewing that she was feeling like controlled by him. So she leaves him. But then Nathan comes to where she teaches and serenades her with their wedding song. And they agrees that he's going to loosen up a little bit because like one thing is she wants to have another baby. But he's like, no, the science says we need to wait five years between having kids. So we can't do it yet. And so she's like sabotaging her birth control and stuff. And he's becoming more and more like aggressive about being controlling. But because he's agreed to loosen up, she decides to come home. And the fourth one is where we get Tom Hulse. I guess him showing up is kind of the inciting incident of the movie. I really liked the relationship between him and the dad because it kind of defied expectations because he's like the loser kid, but he's also daddy's favorite little youngster boy that, you know, it's always the youngest who gets the special treatment. He, oh, he's just he's just the baby of the family. He gets into trouble, you know. I liked it too. I mean, it really gave the dad the older dad an opportunity to shine and show you that he is not really all that bad and obviously has a lot on his plate too. And it was funny seeing Hulse in this role because of course we associate him with Mozart and yet Mozart had some of this same trajectory too, where like he has vices and like degenerates over the course of the story. So this is like if Mozart was not good at anything. <laughs> if he wasn't like a historically great composer, if he instead was just 
born into a middle class family, you know, in 20th century America. That's another thing is although there are some things that are distinctly 80s here, this is yet another movie that's kind of in that general late mid century, clearly post World War Two, clearly pre 1990s, but uh, or pre 9-11 for sure. But like you could probably place this in the 70s or the early 90s or I don't know, maybe even the late 60s, except for some of the technology they see and maybe some of the social mores and stuff. But Larry, so that's the name of Tom Hulse's character. Larry shows up with a kid. And what is the name of, of his kid, Brian? So he's the only black character in the movie is this little boy that has fallen into Tom Hulse's custody and his name is cool c-o-o-l a kid named cool and i i like i had to pause the movie and think about this for a minute i'm glad that like ridiculous names for kids is a trend that predates when we started having kids and we're like encountering the the broad universe of parents choosing crazy names for their kids right apples and daenerys right one of my all-time favorite comedy bits, stand-up comedy, is from Louis C.K., one of his first specials when he kind of really became one of the more popular comedians. He was talking about parenting, and he, he said, you know what's amazing to me? You can name your kid anything you want. There are no laws. There should be a couple of laws. <laughs> I think about that a lot, and he gives some pretty funny examples in there but there are no laws to say you can't name your kid cool apparently i guess it's better to be named cool than to be named lame that's true stupid idiot <laughs> isn't that like a experiment they've done <laughs> what do you mean like raise twins and call one a positive thing and call one something terrible yeah i swear it's been done i gotta find a reference to it when there's something like that. It's like normative something or other. I don't know. I'll find the article about it and I'll post it to the Discord. Interesting. Join the Discord at thegoodsfilmpodcast.com. Yeah, we'll just bombard you with unethical experiments. <laughs> Thinking back on this moment, I remembered a specific line from the film, which might have been my favorite line of the movie, but this comes from uh, Keanu Reeves. He's talking about something else, not about Tom Hulse having a baby and naming him cool, but he says... You know, Mrs. Buckman, you need a license to buy a dog or drive a car. Hell, you need a license to catch a fish. But they'll let any butt-reaming asshole be a father. And not to say Tom Hulse is a butt-reaming asshole, but... Uh, I thought that was an interesting choice of verbiage. Because, at least from what I've been told, if you're reaming the butt, you don't wind up a father. Right? <laughs> I, I guess so, yeah. That's a good point. Biology would say, yeah. So when he shows up, at first he just wants a little bit of money from his dad. By a little bit, I mean like a couple thousand dollars. And it, it's clear that this is not the first time that this has happened. Like it's a regular occurrence that he reappears and asks for money. But then it emerges that like something darker is going on. And he claims that he's $26,000 in gambling debt. And the bookies are threatening to kill him if he doesn't pay up. So now this kind of becomes a, a conflict for Frank, the grandfather character, Larry's dad, where he has to basically decide, is he going to like sell everything he has and postpone retirement to pay off his son's gambling debt? 
Or is he going to let Larry figure it out for himself? But he ultimately makes an offer to Larry like, hey, I'll pay off the debt if you agree to join the family business and enter Gamblers Anonymous. And it seems like he's going to agree at first. But then he's like, but first, can I have some money to go chase a platinum mine in Chile instead? And this is like when it dawns on Frank that Larry is doomed to never really settle down. And so now the grandfather offers to take care of cool while Larry runs off. And this actually surprised me that it went kind of the darker route of Larry being a a deadbeat because it kind of avoids being too happy, feel goody. And I was like, oh, wow, they ended up doing that, you know? I felt like it was what we were leading to, but yeah, I thought it worked that it isn't all sunshine and roses. This movie's a good mix of like some some darkness is in there. Yeah. Without being overwhelming, without being cloying, like you said. It's neither too bleak nor too saccharine. So those are kind of the four threads. And then the climax is, Brian, everybody gets a baby. That's what happens in the climax, uh, this last scene. So we see someone giving birth in the future. And it's doing the same thing you were talking about, where we don't see who's giving the baby, but we see the baby come out. And so we're thinking, which baby is this that's being born? Who's the mom? Is it Mary Steenburgen? Is it the teen mom? Is it, oh, wait, now Rick Moranis's wife is actually going to have her kid. Well, no, it's actually Diane Weist, someone who wasn't even pregnant. And there was not even in talks about having another kid throughout the film. And basically everybody else has had a kid at this point. Yeah, just everybody has a baby. So like you didn't even need to wonder because the answer is all of them. Exactly. Yeah. Like, oh, for the days when there were birth rates like these. (laughs) Right. Steve Martin, they have their fourth kid. By the way, one nice touch on the angst about having a fourth kid is that Larry is the fourth kid and he's the total deadbeat. So now in Steve Martin's head, like that's what a fourth kid is, you know? Yeah, it it just never failed to like make me chuckle a little bit when Tom Hulse, he's like the bad example. And just when the two roles that I know him from are like these supernaturally talented and like underappreciated characters of Mozart and Quasimodo. And now he's just a scumbag. No redeeming qualities. And we also see that Rick Moranis and his wife are expecting to. So that's a total of let's count them. So there's. Diane Weist's baby, there's Gil and Karen's baby, there's Julian Todd Keanu's baby, there's Rick Moranis's baby. So that's a four baby climax, Brian. That's more than more babies than there are in your the typical final scene of a, a movie. Right. And the father's father, Robards, has to take care of the 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 young cool as well. So it's almost like he's starting as a father too. That's true, yeah. And their grandmother is still alive. So, like, Jason Robard's mom is around in the picture. Oh, I forgot. Yeah. So this is like a... how is that five generations? By the end, it's five when Plimpton has a kid. Yeah. Yeah. So, wow, we're up to five generations in one movie, all alive at the end. I feel like Steve Martin's grandmother wouldn't still be alive. He just looks too old. That smash cut, when he says he's 35, the kid says, I'm really 35. And then you dissolve to completely shock gray haired Steve Martin. Yeah. Beggared belief a little bit. To be fair, he has looked like that now for like 40 years. So 
you know, I think he was someone who looked old, young and has kind of stayed that way. Apparently he was like 45 when they filmed it, which would make a little more sense. But I still would have guessed older than 45. But yeah. And that's Parenthood from 1989. I like this movie, Brian. I thought it was pretty good. We'll get to our rating here in a minute. But yeah, I have to say it's it's up there among the wrong Ron Howard movies I've seen. It really grew on me as it was going. And one thing you didn't even mention. So Gil has got these two younger kids and they kind of even get like little mini threads in there. And there's a little bit with the grandmother. So there's all kinds of stuff going on. But when things are kind of in flux and Gil has quit the job and they're not sure how things are working out with the emotionally sensitive son and they don't know what they're going to do about this fourth baby who's on the way. They go to uh, like a school play for their youngest, or I guess it's for the daughter that's in the middle. And so like the two sons are with them in the audience and the little like toddler son wanders off through the, the theater and they're like trying to grab him and bring him back, but he's gotten loose. The grandmother had this kind of speech where it was that was the one like a little emotionally manipulative yeah a little on the nose like oh this is cloying this is a little on the nose where she says that parenthood is like a roller coaster and they even lampshaded a little bit where steve martin actually says oh that's hokey that's contrived that's too much that's going too far with the sentiment great story grandma yeah but then when they're at this play and the kid wanders off, we get the final fantasy bit where the camera work gets really creative. And it's like the whole auditorium turns into a roller coaster as Steve Martin is sitting in his seat and like having a panic attack. And with the wife next to him is like sitting there and laughing at what all is going on. So it's like the experiences that you might have on a roller coaster. Some people are into it. Some people could be scared and it's kind of like the little perfect culmination of all these ideas. I liked that the toddler, his arc was that he likes to smash his head into things. They, that came up like three times. Uh, he keeps bashing his head into things. That made me laugh. But yeah, this movie kind of like upped in my estimation several times. There were like a few plateaus that it climbed to. And it got to the highest point for me when it did this simulation of the roller coaster. I thought that was really visually interesting and perfectly capped some of the themes. Mm -hmm. So this movie got two Oscar nominations. The first was a Best Supporting Actress nomination for Diane Wiest. And I thought she was really good in this. She's a great actress. I've seen her in a couple things now. Um, she was also in Hannah and Her Sisters, which is a... Woody Allen movie and she actually won an Oscar for that and I think she won an Oscar for another Woody Allen movie but she's terrific in Hannah and her sisters had you seen her in much before I couldn't remember she was another one who had a familiar face but I wasn't immediately familiar with other films they'd done yeah um, and then they got a best song the score was written by Randy Newman and he had a couple of songs thrown in there too the credit song sounds so much like You've Got a Friend in Me. It's got to have the same chord progression or something. I think that's probably the one that got the Oscar nomination. I love to see you smile, it's called. 
I love to see you smile. I love to see you smile. <laughs> it's, I mean, it is almost like that. Yeah. You're gonna see it's my destiny. Gonna make you smile. So it was like that. So are you ready to throw a rating on this one? Yup. Is It Good is our signature section where we each give the movie a rating on our eight-point goodness scale, ranging from very not good, which is a one out of eight, to our masterpiece rating, Torta Good, which is an eight out of eight. So, Brian, is Parenthood a good movie? So sometimes it's good to go into a movie knowing nothing about it, like never even having heard of it, because then you've got no preconceived notions. You're not really expecting anything. And this was a really positive surprise. I was impressed how it managed all the different story threads. Nothing feels really undercooked. And nothing is too out of left field. Things develop organically and nothing breaks your suspension of disbelief. And the characters seem human, but still get up to interesting developments. There's this scene where Jason Robards goes to talk to Steve Martin and he says, I know you think I was a bad father. Well, I think you're a good father. And so I need some advice because no matter how old you get or how old they get, your kids are still your kids. And I was sobbing. Just I was breaking down like this is maybe the perfect example of a dramedy where it's a comedy that has the drama beats, but it all works as a soup. I'm going to give this a seven out of eight, an exceptionally good movie. And I'm probably due to watch it again before too long and may reevaluate, but yeah, really well done by Ron Howard. I thought, what are your thoughts, Dan? I'm pretty close there with you, Brian. I, I really like this movie. Out of all of Ron Howard's movies, I would probably put this only below Apollo 13. And honestly, not that much below it, just a little below it, I would say. And in some ways, it does some things better than what I like about Apollo 13. I feel like this movie's got a tremendous control of tone. It never wobbles too far into mean or into nice, or into sweet, or nasty. It kind of just goes back and forth. Some good things happen, some bad things happen. Some conflicts are resolved, but some are left dangling. Like, we never quite know exactly what's going to happen to Steve Martin's son. And it's maybe, like, just a hair bland, I guess. Like, there's not quite enough. But even as I say that it's a little bland, it it has those fun dream sequences and fantasy sequences that really, like, flesh out what's happening in the quote unquote real world of the movie and deepens that characters that are giving surprising amount of depth, given how many of them there are. And then the way that it has all these different types of parent kid relationships that are each like elemental in different ways. You got the deadbeat, you got the, the one who's trying really hard, but struggling. You got the, the single one who's out there out on an Island you got the one that's trying to be perfect, all kind of struggling in different ways, but also all kind of thriving in different ways, I guess you could say. And just that felt very honest to me and uh, insightful. And I kind of saw 
little bits of myself in most of the parent kid relationships that we saw, not all of them, but little bits of it in all of them, both as a dad and occasionally as a kid too, you know? And I just think it's a, it's a really touching slice of life that I, I too would rewatch. It's a hair on the long side. It's over two hours. Uh, but you got so many characters that it still moves really quickly for, for that length. I'm right on the fence between a six and a seven. I think I'm going to land on a very good for now um, with the possibility of, of revisiting that and bumping it up. And I think it's kind of funny that you ended up giving this one a higher rating than me because from the outside looking in, you would probably peg this as a Dan movie more than a Brian movie. But I think this one's quite good and I'm pretty much right there with you on this. For sure. I agree that I I didn't know how much I was going to like it. ended up liking it quite a bit. It also has a rock of fire explosion scene. <laughs> That's right. I forgot about that. They go to a pizza place. Yep. Animatronic band and all. Yeah. Maybe my favorite scene was the birthday party that is always on the verge of going off the rails. But Steve Martin ends to pull it together. And then, like you said, that the conversation between the granddad and Steve Martin broke your heart. The one that broke my heart into a million pieces was like after that birthday party, they're like dead tired at the end of the day and getting ready for bed. And it's like chaos at the house. And the son says, Dad, do you think when I grow up, I can work at the same place you do so I can see you every day or something like that? It's like you get the emotional payoff on everything that Steve Martin was doing to try and make his son's birthday special. And that to me was really touching. But that's Parenthood, episode 149. And one last thing I'll say is... I appreciate this for being a high production value, incredible cast, but like low stakes, not genre infused, little, just little uh, confection of a movie. Like, I can't imagine this getting made today on this scale with this budget, this production value, this level of cast, this level of accessibility without like any real challenging themes, but still having some bite to it. It's not like overly manipulative. It's not a Hallmark movie or whatever, you know? So like, I, I appreciate this as a relic of the kinds of movies they don't make anymore, you know? So I, I did, I did enjoy that. That's episode 149. We got a big one coming up, Brian. What is our episode 150 going to be? That's right, Dan. So it's broken down pretty nicely in our history that we've each gotten to assign some big number episodes. So 50 was me, and that's when we watched all of Gravity Falls. And then Dan got 100, where we revisited Suspiria that we talked about in our first episode by watching the 2018 remake. So I want to make 150 a milestone, too. It's also going to harken back to episodes past because we're heading into December. You know, longtime listeners, we got to do a sampler platter of the endless Christmas Carol adaptations. You'd think we'd be running out. We're not nowhere near running out. No, no, haven't hit bottom yet. So we've done groupings of four in the past, and we've already done three groupings of four. So we have watched a dozen solid versions of A Christmas Carol previously. Now is our fourth grouping of four. And the broad theme is going to be adaptations that have a more contemporary setting. They're not in that stereotypical, classic, 
Dickensian London, 1840s. It it moves, bumps the date up. Cool. You sent me a list of these. I'm excited to watch them. I am glad we're back in Christmas Carol season. One of my big takeaways from doing this podcast is an appreciation for a Christmas Carol. And I'm glad to go back to that well yet again, year in, year out. So I am excited to see four modern set Christmas carols. Yeah, so we're not 100% married to these, but what it's looking like it's going to be are Scrooged with Bill Murray, Spirited from last year with Will Ferrell and Ryan Reynolds. And then I'm thinking the last two to round it out will be It's Christmas Carol, which is a Hallmark movie, as you just mentioned. About a character named Carol, right? Yes, it's Christmas, comma, Carol. And I think the last one will be called Carol for Another Christmas by Rod Serling in the 60s. So that'll be the oldest one. Sounds good. Looking forward to it, Dan. Yep. And listeners, we will talk to you next week. Thank you for joining. Thank you for letting me speak my piece about losing my father a few months ago and for talking through this charming Ron Howard film from 1989, Parenthood. And we'll see you next week, listeners. Bye. Bye, everybody. Join us again. Bye.